Welcome to the PEO podcast, where we interview industry leaders to discuss all things PEOs. From compliance to technology to client relations and everything in between, I'm your host, Andreas Toller. And so the, the PEO industry, as well as other industries, prove in certain fields that remote work is something that can be done. Uh, you know, allowing employees to work from home is something that can be accomplished without sacrificing productivity, and in some cases, actually enhancing productivity. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the PEO podcast. Today, we're talking with Bill Lyons, chairman and CEO of Lyons HR. Bill has been in the industry for nearly 30 years and has recently published a book called We Are HR. We'll talk with him about his book, his company, and the industry advancements he has seen over the years. You love riding motorbikes and uh, you played in a, in a rock cover band. So plenty of things here to, to jump into more. First of all, what, what kind of bike are you riding right now? And um, if the audience wants to listen to, to your music, where, where can they find it? Well, I, I, I ride a Harley Davidson uh, Ultra limited edition. It's a, it's a nice bike, but I've, I've been riding for probably 15 years. Interesting, uh, we had a sales meeting uh, with our company about 15 years ago, and one of our salespeople arrived on a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And um, as a kid, I always wanted a bike, but my parents never would let me have one. He was anxious to show me the bike. So he, we went out into the parking lot and he showed me the bike and I jumped on it and started it up. And he said, well, take it around the block. So I took it around the block and uh, I was gone for about an hour. <laughs> and <then laughs> I came back. And uh, the next week I, I had bought uh, my, my first motorcycle. And I've, I've been sort of enjoying bikes uh, since then. My my wife rides with me and I ride in a couple of clubs, but uh, I don't get to do it as, as often as I would like to. As far as the music is concerned, uh, I have never made a penny of playing music, and that's probably probably a good thing. But yeah, I've been playing a little guitar uh, since I was a kid. And, and uh, one day, a group of friends of mine and I uh, were in church talking about playing some music, and we got together and started playing. Maybe at one of the next industry events, we can, uh, we can organize a little session here. Um, so, so Bill, you, you're the, the founder and CEO of um, Lions HR. What inspired you 26 years ago to found the company? Well, we started off as a commercial staffing operation, and I was a, a controller and CFO for another company, and we had used uh, temporary staffing in our business as a supplement, and I became fascinated with the business. And also, um, my sister was uh, working with one, and so uh, she and I, uh, started talking about uh, starting one of our own. And so uh, I approached the company that she was working with to acquire them. Uh, I'd had some experience in doing merger and acquisition work. And so we were able to work a deal to start as a commercial staffing business through the acquisition of her temporary staffing uh, business. And the business was very successful in the first few years. We opened up uh, several branches. And then a few years later, uh, branched off into PEO. And of course, PEO became our focus, we, we ended up uh, divesting our staffing division in 2018. And since that time have been focusing 100% of our attention on the growth of our of our PEO. But the, the, the PEO business, you know, we've been in, in it since 2008, you know, over the last 13 years or so have, have uh, been able to grow the, the business quite substantially. And we're real pleased with uh, the progress we've made. 
Yeah, it sounds like the quintessential story of the entrepreneur, right? Where you you start with something, uh, in this case, as a staffing agency, and then you pivot and, and morph the company into, into something else that's then growing quite substantially. Well, I'd always been interested in, in the PEO business. I've been listening to people from the industry and reading about the industry. I actually joined an APO before we started our PEO and did our homework uh, in advance of starting our business. And uh, when, once we got our first PEO client, we were actually processing our first PEO client uh, using staffing software, which is not exactly ideal. So uh, one in, in the early days of our business, we, we had some companies that place a lot of confidence in us. Uh, and then we took the die. We, you know, we said, this is, this is the business we want to be in. And we, we made the investments and hired the right people and, and put the plans in place to, to start our PEO. And it's, it's worked out really well for the last 13 plus years. You mentioned Napio. What role did the, the organization play in your career? How, how are you involved in and, and what would you recommend other leaders in the industry uh, in terms of like really getting involved there and uh, learning from the best? I think it's an outstanding industry association. I think it really proved itself during this past year, uh, during the COVID crisis. So many times uh, our clients were asking questions of us and we did not have immediate answers. But one thing that we had was NAPIO watching the, the regulations and, and giving us guidance as it was coming down. I remember, you know, last year during the height of that pandemic, they would put together a webinar the day after new regs would be issued and they would have information for us. And so we had them on the front lines monitoring what was happening. And then we had our legal teams attending the webinars from NAPIO. And then they were disseminating that information out to our HR teams who were then interacting with our clients. And so I think they really distinguished themselves as being an outstanding organization. They've, they've been tireless advocates, obviously, for our industry. We've always been members of, of NAPIO. I couldn't uh, recommend membership strongly enough. I think it's got great leadership. Uh, Pat Cleary does an outstanding job with the industry organization. The uh, state and federal legislative affairs committees, I think, uh, do an outstanding job as well. One, one thing I know that NAPIO has really made a priority of in, in recent years is trying to just generate awareness. When we started our PEO, when we start, went out and started talking to, to companies about using our services, most of the people here didn't know what a PEO was. And I know other states like Florida, New York, Texas, Arizona, and some of these other states around the country had a more mature market in that the consuming public understood the concept. We had to start from scratch. And, and I remember early on really struggling with, you know, how do I simplify this business model? Because let's, let's face it, it's not a simple business model. There are a lot of moving parts. And I think one thing that NAPIO has done a good job of in recent years is spreading the, the, the news. They've, they've really put an emphasis on uh, just creating awareness in the marketplace that, hey, we're here. And of course, you know, the book that I wrote, We Are HR, the whole purpose behind that was to try to create more awareness in our industry that yeah, this is a tremendous value proposition for small to medium-sized business owners who are looking at trying to maybe look at a, an alternative way to manage their labor costs. This is an outstanding opportunity if they only know about us. So we're, we're trying our best to get the word out. There's so much here, so many topics to, to dig a little bit deeper into. I want to Go back to one point um, as it relates to Lions HR and your role there. Uh, in the preparation for this interview, I learned one really interesting fact. You said like that the most important thing for you as, as the CEO of the company is to set the culture. What, what does it mean to you? Like what, what is culture? How do you set it? How can you influence this? Tell us more about that. 
I think that culture is by far the most important responsibility of a CEO. Uh, I think the CEO's number one responsibility, obviously, is to set the vision of the company. Here's why we exist. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here are our objectives. Here's, here's the direction that we're going as an organization. That's number one. Uh, number two is assembling the right people, uh, assembling a team of professionals that know their area of expertise and blending that group together in a cohesive way so that there's synergy created and th the efforts of all of them, you know, you know, move the boat forward. So, so it seems like for you that is, it's a CEO priority. It's even so important that you created a specific role for this, right? You know, for, for certain organizations, POs that might not be quite of your size and, and can't make that investment quite yet, what are certain tangible ways that you can recommend other PO leaders to foster the right culture at their organization? Most business owners are, particularly small companies, are focused on the immediate issues right in front of them, controlling expenses, taking care of the things that are right in front of their face. Uh, you have to have a competitive salary and benefits plan to attract good employees to begin with. You know, we always talk about attracting and retaining employees. Well, if you can attract good employees with, a, with a, a good salary and benefits plan, but you won't retain those employees unless you have the culture that goes with it. And so small companies that are that are struggling with this, this issue and, and that are experiencing turnover, that's one of the biggest challenges we face is to get them to understand the exponential benefit to their business that prioritizing culture would have. Shopping for cheaper insurance or shopping for lower workers' comp, or those are things that are important, but those are not things that are going to have a long-term impact on profitability creating effective safety programs within your company will. Creating, um, say, an employee assistance program where you're helping an employee not only professionally, but in their personal life. You know, EAP programs, since the, the pandemic started, have, have really increased in popularity because, let's face it, you, you know, people have struggled in their personal lives. People's personal financial situation has, has been impacted. Uh, some people have had legal issues that have resulted. Uh, there have been marital issues, there have been addiction issues that have come up and effective employee assistance programs is the company's way of saying, let me tend to the entire person, not just the worker, not just the person who's here from say, you know, eight to five, but the person in total, I want to take care of that person completely. These programs can have a, a tremendous impact. You talk about the culture uh, and, and most EAP programs are very inexpensive to implement. They're, they're out there, you know, helping somebody who's going through a, a difficult financial stretch in their life might be something that you could do. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, there's been an increase in addiction issues and uh, helping people manage those things and come out of that uh, is, is, is another very important part of the AP program. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the pandemic in that context, you know, a lot of CEOs nowadays are not talking just about client churn anymore, right? So clients leaving their companies, but employee churn and terminations and what would that do to their companies during those difficult times? So thanks for your perspective there and like tangible advice for other leaders, how to, to mitigate some of this. So you started in the industry in 1995. What have been some of the the big trends that, that you have seen that are really changing the industry uh, and making a profound impact? I think it's been more of a gradual thing. Obviously, the in industry, the most to me, the most impactful year was the year 2014. Mm -hmm. That was the year that the ACA went into effect. 
Uh, of course, the ACA was passed in 2010, but it was not implemented until 2014 because of a you know, multiple attempts to repeal it, and there was a lot of political bickering back and forth. That was at the beginning of 2014, the implementation of ACA. The, the industry has never seen an influx of new business like it did in 2014. I think it was about a 24% year uh, growth year for the industry after having averaged about 8% prior to that time. So it's, it, was, it was a big surge of new business. And then at the end of 2014, we had the passage of the SBEA, which ushered in the you know, certification program for PEOs that choose to participate in that. It, it, it was the first time we had legal certainty at a federal level mm-hmm. uh, for the industry that we had for years tried to obtain. It brought about you know, the non-starting uh, of, of wage bases for uh, new business. Basically, the SBEA created a 12-month selling cycle, whereas prior to that, we had this whole you know, emphasis on trying to get all the business in on the fourth quarter because everybody wanted to start January 1 to avoid wage restarts. Well, the SBEA did away with that because uh, for those PEOs who were certified, they were able to backload those wages as the successor employer, and we avoided having to restart those wages. So it essentially made the selling cycle a full 12 months of the year as opposed to you know, let's do it all, you know, in, in the fourth quarter, because it became a real, you know, prior to SBEA, it was a real stressful time. Fourth quarter is when all of, you know, most of your new business was jammed into the fourth quarter for a one-one start. And so uh, I think it was real helpful uh, for, the, for the industry in that regard. And then, and then there was the question about, well, who retains the tax credit? That question was put to bed by the SBEA. You know, before the passage of the SBEA, one of the issues that we dealt with was, you know, a company that you're talking to about coming on board with a PEO. Well, what about these tax credits that I get? If all of a sudden all of my payroll is being reported under your federal ID number as opposed to my federal ID number, it creates confusion about who's entitled to that credit. Well, the SBEA did away with that, and it validated that the client is entitled to that credit. And so, you know, as PEOs, we may, we manage that on behalf of our clients. So it was a huge boost to the industry. Uh, it, it, again, if you think about all the legislation that's been passed over the last 30, 40 years that, in, that affects employment, all of that legislation was passed with the idea you have one employer and you have one employee. Okay, the idea of an alternative employer or an alternative employer arrangement was never part of the original legislation until the SBEA. The PEO industry was always trying to make certain that our interests were protected after certain legislation was passed. But the SBEA was the first piece of legislation that was specifically written for PEOs. And so it gives legal certainty to the industry, and it, I, I think it can certainly give clients of certified PEOs uh, greater assurance that their PEOs are operating the way they should. If you would look now into the future, right, and say, like, hey, these will be the things for the next five, seven years, topics that CEOs, POs, leaders should just think about right now, right, to be mm-hmm. successful in the future, what comes to mind? Workplace flexibility is something that we're seeing. Um, we're seeing this in the in PEO operations themselves, but also in our clients. The pandemic forced people to work from home. Uh, and you've always had people that have been re- remote work. You've always had uh, video conferencing capabilities like what we're doing right now. But never ha- before the pandemic did you see this massive surge in utilization of those technology tools. And so the, the PEO industry, as well as other industries, proved in certain fields that 
remote work is something that can be done. Uh, you know, allowing employees to work from home is something that can be accomplished without sacrificing productivity, and in some cases, actually enhancing productivity. So I think you're going to see an increase in some type of a hybrid mid, a business model where you've got employees that have the capability of working either from home or from the office, you know, depending upon their schedule. And, and that's a huge uh, benefit to certain employees who have personal circumstances that would be made easier by the fact that they're able to work from home. You're, you're seeing that increase. I think our industry is also going to continue to grow. Uh, I've never been more bullish on the PEO industry because I, I, I saw during the pandemic the impact that PEOs have had with their clients. I've heard some great stories of how PEOs went above and beyond helping their clients, particularly with obtaining these PPP loans and thinking about how much they help their clients during this period of time. I think it's going to have a huge impact on the growth of the industry. So uh, I was reading in, in one of the most recent white papers that the impact that PEOs had on their clients' ability to get the PPP loans, particularly during the first round of funding, which that, uh, that initial $349 million, uh, billion, rather, that was approved, you know, most, most of the large companies, you know, big companies were gobbling up that money early on. But smaller businesses who got an average uh, PPP loan of, say, $115,000, they were advantaged over other companies that didn't work with a PEO because the PEO had the information needed to get the loan application completed more quickly. So 119% of the employee, uh, of, the, of the clients that applied for PPP loans were able to get them more so than those who were not in a PEO relationship. So the, the impact that they've had in helping their clients get those loans in that first round I think had a lot to do with the survival of a lot of their their clients. I want to go back to the point that you made about remote work, right? I think it's on, on the top of the minds of, of us in the industry. It seems to be that there are essentially three different schools, right? Hey, everybody's remote. We'll, we'll save the cost for the office here yeah. and like just recruit the best talent regardless of, of the location. Then you have the other extreme. We all need to be back at the office tomorrow, right? And then maybe something in between. You, you mentioned the hybrid model, right? And and obviously each of these probably have as their own challenges. Where where do you fall with with line to, ah, What are your plans, right, for your own company to to roll this out and to, to make this a success? Well, during the pandemic, uh, we were 100% remote. We were nervous about it because we had never done it 100% before. We've always had people that have been able to work remotely, but never have we sent everyone home. Uh, we put plans in place to have that capability. I think at the current time, we are in evaluation mode, if you will, because I think there are some things that remain uh, to be worked out in, in that regard. Right now, most of our employees are back at work. Our headquarters is in the state of Alabama, so we're nearing the end of the mask mandate and things are starting to loosen up in our state. We do have locations in other states that we have to be concerned about. I think that we're we're evaluating that at the moment and we will probably uh, end up with some, some combination of that. Now, I'm being careful about what I say because I know that there are those within our organization that have feelings on both sides of that issue. And so I think we're probably still evaluating the, the, the best way to maximize productivity. The, the key here is not whether or not employees are, are you know, on site versus at home. 
to me, the key is, uh, number one, is their safety, making certain that they're safe, whether they're at home or at the office. But just as important is making certain that there's no disruption to our clients. If our clients can reach our people uh, and they're at the office or they can reach their our people and they're working remotely, that to me is the most important thing. Their safety first and then secondly, making sure that we don't have any uh, disruption in service. And so I know that the oversight of operations is made more difficult by a remote workforce. And, and so because of that, there are some things that have to be worked through. Those are the particulars that we're uh, still in the process of evaluating. That's yeah, so certainly an interesting time, right? And also an interesting opportunity. Like how can yeah. we now really foster a new working uh, environment that, that essentially takes the best out of those two worlds. And how can you still have the innovation, right? Is that done remotely? Do we have to come to a hub to, to do that together? How can we me uh, measure success, right? Do we have the right tracking systems in place and whatnot? So yeah, I'm, I'm sure the next three, six, 12 months will be very telling and interesting as different companies find their specific models here. I think so. I, I think so. And we're we're open to either one. Uh, the, the remote work arrangement is not something we've ever done before, but part of our business continuity plan is to make certain that no matter what happens, that we're able to serve our client. And um, whatever that looks like in the future is, is still an, an unresolved issue for us. We talked a little bit about industry accreditations, right? For, for employees, for companies. There are obviously different thoughts on that in the industry. We'd love to mm -hmm. he hear your two cents and to get some feedback here. Well, we talked a little bit about the uh, IRS certification program that was brought about by the passage of the SBEA. I think there are about 64 PEOs that have gone through the process of, of becoming certified. And when, when that program was first launched, I thought there would be a huge rush of PEOs to obtain that certification. I think we were in the one of the first 10 PEOs in the country that became certified by the IRS. But, uh, but there's been a surprisingly large number of PEOs that have taken sort of a wait and see attitude mm -hmm. to see, is this really going to advance the cause or is this going to move the dial in any significant way? You know, keep in mind that the protections that are made available through the SBEA are only available to those PEOs who choose, and again, it's a voluntary program, to become certified, to provide that annual audit, to pay that nominal fee, uh, to go through those quarterly reporting requirements. So there are 64 of, uh, at last count that had gone through the process. Now, of course, the one thing that the SBEA does is it provides assurance to clients for a PEO's performance with regard to federal tax responsibilities. That is, you know, FICA, Medicare, federal employment insurance. But ESAC, on the other hand, provides assurance to clients for the full range of employer liabilities, which goes well beyond, as you know, federal uh, income tax. It provides assurance for a PEO's performance with regard to state unemployment, state uh, withholdings. Also, all the benefit plans that uh, a PEO uh, might administer. You think about all the withholdings that come out mm -hmm. of out of an employee's check. It's more than just FICA and Medicare. You you have 401k withholding. You have health insurance and a full array of benefit plans that are withheld out of an employee's paycheck. ESAC provides assurance to the client that the PEOs who have achieved accreditation are acting properly with regard to all of those liabilities. And to me, it's a, it's obviously a much more comprehensive assurance, and it's also backed by $15 million worth of bonds that are held in trust. And so those two things together, I think, can provide a client with a level of comfort that, hey, if I'm doing business with a PEO that's certified by the IRS, 
And if I'm doing business with a PEO that is accredited by ESAC, um, I have about as much assurance that this PEO is going to perform responsibly with these funds as is available in the industry. I think there are 23 PEOs that possess both certification from the IRS and accreditation from ESAC. That number has been pretty flat, uh, I think, since the launch of the certification program. So I think that the, the SBEA and the certification program that it created provided a huge boost to the industry because it gave insurance at a federal level. But also, when you say something is IRS certified, that carries a lot of weight. The IRS is probably the scariest entity on the planet because it can, you know, it can come after you. Okay, but if you say that our PEO is certified by the IRS, uh, that immediately resonates with clients. The comprehensive nature of ESAC accreditation on the other hand, takes more explanation with the client. There are certain states where ESAC accreditation is well known and certain clients won't do business with a PEO unless they have that accreditation. There are other places where you have to start from scratch and tell them what Employer Services Assurance Corporation is. And so, uh, you know, we operate in all of those different markets. And so we run into both of those scenarios. I think that the ESAC uh, is, without a doubt, the, the most comprehensive level of, of assurance because PEOs who submit to that comply with over 40 financial and operating standards that are put together by regulators of PEOs. So if you think about the board of directors of the ESAC, it's made up of industry operators. I used to be on the board. It's also made up of former uh, industry regulators, called independent directors, and then also industry advisors. So CPAs, you know, attorneys that serve the industry. So they serve on the board. Former regulators are on the board. And then you have operators who are in the trenches every day trying to run their PEO are represented on the board. That is a very comprehensive representation of the industry. If you are a PEO and you're adhering to the more than 40 standards of operating financial standards within that framework, then I think that is, is very comforting to a client who is trying to select a PEO. If there's only 5% of the PEOs in the country that uh, are ESAC accredited, it's, it's, I think it's worth pointing out. I think right now there are 41 ESAC accredited PEOs. Well, about the time new PEOs become accredited, you have PEOs that have been around for a while that get acquired. And so the number of new PEOs coming into the program versus the number of PEOs that get acquired by larger PEOs who are also accredited tend to offset one another. And so you've had a sort of a level effect of the number of PEOs that have chosen to be accredited over the last 25, 26 years since ESAC was, was established. And so, you know, people ask me that question, you know, why are not more PEOs accredited by ESAC? And so uh, I, I think there are a number of reasons. Number one is the, the standards are very high. It does require an owner to leave certain capital in the business. Certain financial ratios have to be maintained in order to uh, continue the accreditation. There are fees involved. Uh, and there's also quarterly agreed upon procedures that have to be adhered to and reported on independently by CPA to validate the uh, accreditation status. And so not every PEO operator is willing to do that. And so there are a number that choose not to do it. And we tend to think there's a lot of value in it. We like to sell uh, on the basis of our accreditation because we feel like it gives our clients uh, a level of peace of mind knowing that uh, they're, they're dealing with a reputable PEO. So it seems like for you then as well, it's, it's about positioning, differentiation, and, and to a certain degree, a sales enabler as well. Yes. 
we started our BEO, uh, I mentioned we were originally a staffing organization in 2008. We started the BEO division and we, I immediately started pursuing accreditation uh, upon establishing our PEO. We were able to achieve accreditation the first year of our operation, but we sort of used the PEO operating standards and financial metrics as sort of a roadmap on how to um, start our PEO. That was our choice. We felt like the operating standards were such that we could pattern and, and build a strong uh, operating blueprint from those standards. And so that was the basis. And we, we hope that you know by the, by the end of this process, we will have met all of the standards and therefore will be awarded accreditation. Of course, we were. I want to uh, switch topics here. I saw that your book, We Are HR, got published on, on Amazon here recently. So congrats on that. Tell us more about your motivation. I'm, I'm sure a lot of work goes into writing and publishing a book. What was your motivation for this project? I was approached by uh, representatives of Forbes books of, about the project. I'd never really thought about writing a book. I, I mentioned you know, at the beginning of our conversation here how how underserved and that, that I thought the the industry was with regard to just awareness. And I thought this might be a great opportunity to write a book that sort of tells the story of the PEO, not from a technical perspective, because I think, um, you know, back in the late 80s, there was a, a gentleman by the name of T. Joe Willie that wrote a book on uh, employee leasing, which is what it was called back in those days. And the industry was, you know, 10 years old at the time. It was very raw and fresh. And he wrote a book on the operations of an employee leasing business. And um, I saw that and I thought, well, you know, this is interesting, but this is this is a book for those who might want to consider starting an employee leasing business. This is not a book that really persuades uh, a small business owner to pick up the phone and call a PEO. And so I wanted to write a book that I that I thought might educate the public. That, and again, it's not a very technical book. I wanted to make it an easy to read book. So we, we you know, I keep it at a at a high level, but I hope it sparks an interest. And so that business owner who's you know stressing out over his, his health insurance premiums going up or is worried about you know OSHA coming and shutting him down because of safety procedures or he's had a number of claims or you know he, his his workers comp premiums are going up or he's having just terrible turnover the, the kind of things that plague a lot of small businesses i hope that that small business might read the book and think this is a real viable alternative to what i'm now going through I mean, the, the PEO value proposition has always been, you know, allow us to take these non-revenue producing administrative responsibilities off your place so you can focus on the things that make you money, serving your clients and growing your business, improving your products and services. Those are the things that business owners need to be focused on, not on dealing with a, with a state unemployment uh, issue or not, not dealing with a, a health insurance renewal or worrying about a workers' comp audit. Those are the things that, that rob a business owner of their time but do not add a nickel to the bottom line. And so I wrote the book because I thought that if, if we can at least educate the public about what PEOs are, then they might pick up the phone and call the PEO near them. I was hoping that it would be something that might advance the industry. And then secondly, I, I thought about, you know, newcomers into this industry, if they had a book like this that sort of told the story, that went back to the very beginning, the origins of the industry, told about how the business started, how it evolved, some of the pitfalls and problems that we experienced along the way, how we finally got our act together, and then explaining how this business really works, and then telling the story about how the future is likely to play out based on you know, current economic conditions and, and uh, other, other factors that impact our business. If a newcomer to the industry had that as sort of a, 
an orientation, sort of like a PEO primer, I think it would be really, really helpful. And so I'm hoping that the that the book does two things. I hope that it uh, will advance the industry and create more awareness among potential uh, PEO business uh, clients. But then secondly, I hope that it's going to be used sort of as an orientation guide to newcomers into the industry. Because I'm I'm all about trying to promote the, the industry. Um, I think, you know, rising tides lift all ships. And so I, I want to help every PEO get more business. And I hope the book can be used for that purpose. It seems like in terms of your, your target audience, you, you mentioned, um, you know, small business owners, you mentioned newcomers to the to the industry, somebody wants to start or run a PO or be in a leadership position there. I assume also HR professionals, right, um, that, that want to yeah. educate them. Are there any other segments where you say like, hey, this is, um, this is where, where this book could add value and be relevant? I think of business advisors, small business, you know, you, you think about CPAs and bankers and and, uh, and attorneys that, that advise their clients. You know, this has always been a, a hotbed of referral sources for people in the PEO industry. You always want to talk to CPAs and bankers and, and, and business lawyers and, and convince them and persuade them that, hey, this is really a viable business model. This is something that truly adds value. And it can be done at a cost that's much less than what you're your client can do these same services for. If you can persuade them, then you you really have, have done something because they are the opinion leaders that are going to then go to their clients and make those recommendations on your behalf. So if there's a third audience for the book, I, I would say those professional business advisors would be a strong third candidate. I think they could really benefit from, from looking at the book. You know, you mentioned HR managers, and there is a concern out there among some HR professionals that PEOs are a threat to their to their jobs and to their livelihoods, and so it's it's a, a lack of understanding of what PEOs do and what we are that generates that concern. Um, obviously, the Society of Human Resource Management, which we belong to, is a tremendous organization full of dedicated professionals that serve human resources needs in, in companies around the country. We certainly do not feel as though we, we pose a threat. We are an HR option or alternative to small business owners who typically cannot afford a large HR infrastructure within their within their company. For you know less than the cost of one HR professional, a small business owner can hire a PEO and and get you know a safety expert, can get you know a financial expert, can get a tax expert, can get a you know payroll that's done correctly and accurately every time can get, you know, certain guidance in, in technical areas of HR that really require a diverse set of skill sets that are that usually one single HR professional is going to be beyond their scope, beyond their capabilities. And so to me, that's where the real value of our services come in in serving that small to medium-sized business. And again, when you look at the, the target market for the PEO, it's uh, employers that have between 10 and 100 employees. Well, why is that? That's because usually companies that have employees between 10 and 99 are too small to have a big HR infrastructure, but they're also too large to ignore HR. And so a PEO is a beautiful fit for them because they get the benefit of all of this expertise uh, for less than the cost of one HR professional. And then the obvious question, like how did you, what, what are kind of like the main topics that you are diving into? Well, I was trying to accomplish several things with the book. Number one, you know, I'm promoting PEOs and I'm not bashful about that. And, and I make no apologies for trying to, to mm -hmm. promote the value proposition of PEOs, but I wanted to educate, yeah, and this goes back to, I mentioned industry newcomers, people coming into the business. 
I'm sure right now there are people who have been working in this industry for years that don't know how the business started. I wanted to start there. I wanted to go back to the very beginning and say, here's how the industry started. It started off as a tax advantage pension play for you know wealthy physicians. And then it evolved into all of these other areas that businesses have grown dependent upon. And so I wanted to explain, you know, here's how it started. Here's how it evolved. Here are some of the pitfalls that the industry experienced along the way. Here's where we cleaned up our act. Okay, then boom, 1995, NAPIO is, uh, you know, is established. You have ESAC that is created to provide uh, guarantees uh, or assurances to, to PEO clients. And then you have really from 1995 forward, you see a maturing of the industry and a diversification. You know, used to, you know, in the very early days, it was, you know, the pension play, then it was, you know, we can save you money on your on your uh, workers' comp insurance. And so workers' comp carriers were scurrying, trying to figure out, you know, what exactly are we insuring out there? You know, you have a construction company over here that's being reported as a, you know, as an insurance office and all kinds of miscoding and classifications going on. And so uh, there were a lot of variations that happened in the industry, in the insurance industry that affected the industry early on. Well, post-1995, that's when they, you know, all of those missteps in starting to where we got to in 1995, that was all in the past, or at least we, we, we like to think it was. And the business, the industry started policing itself and it started getting its act together. It started becoming more concerned about state and federal uh, regulation, getting uh, legitimacy and recognized within within the various taxing authorities. And that's one of the things that ESAC has done is, is uh, you know, speak to the various state regulators in, in an effort to try to promote the industry. ESAC promotes uh, the industry to regulators at the, at the state level because that's where it's, it's always been regulated. And right now, ESAC has many states, I think over around 20 states, that accept ESAC accreditation in lieu of all are part of their state licensing requirements. And so there was an effort to try to legitimize the industry. So it's not the wild, wild west anymore, but this is a legitimate growing uh, industry. And now there's what, 907 PEOs in the country paying about three, I think three and a half million worksite employees, about 175,000 um, PEO clients among those 907 so we're we're not a blip on the radar any lo- any longer. The, the industry is growing. The industry has, with the passage of SBEA, has got federal certainty, has got federal recognition within the IRS code. And I think all of the uh, stars are aligned, as they say, for us to continue to distinguish ourselves as a tremendously valuable business partner to the small business owner, particularly in light of COVID and the things that we had to do in 2020. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at po-podcast.com to learn more. I'm Andreas Deptoller and this is a PO Podcast. We'll see you next time.